Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this February 3rd, 2023. A very cold day, but we're looking forward to it warming up significantly uh, into the weekend. Uh, Coming up later, the western U.S. has suffered severe drought for years. Uh, What if, as a solution, you pumped water from the Mississippi? Yes, the Mississippi to say, oh, Arizona? How about that? Your eyebrows just went up, I have a feeling. It's no joke. It's a real proposal. We'll hear about it later this half hour when I talk with Brittany Miller of the Gazette. Then in the second half hour, I'll talk uh, with the chair of the board of the National Motorcycle Museum in Anamosa. They plan to close their doors for good later this year. What will happen to all those motorcycles? There are hundreds of them in that museum. We'll find out later in the program. Well, let's start this hour by finding out what our lawmakers have been up to this week. Uh, We're now about a month into the 2023 legislative session. Katie Aiken is with us, Des Moines Register Politics reporter. Hello again, Katie. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going well, and I see you've been focusing on, well, these very controversial bills, uh, legislation advancing that would restrict uh, what Iowa schools can teach about gender identity or how they can accommodate transgender kids, a number of bills here. Uh, Lay it out there for us. Give us some uh, details on what's going on. Absolutely. So right from the first week of session, we saw uh, Republican Republican lawmakers introduce several bills related to what Iowa schools, you know, can and cannot teach when it comes to LGBTQ concepts. Uh, There's one bill that would prohibit instruction about gender identity from kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, Another bill, which is very similar to the uh, Florida law that many opponents called the don't say gay law. Uh, We have a sort of similar proposal here in Iowa that would prohibit instruction about gender identity and sexual orientation from first through third grade. Uh, And and there are other proposals as well that we saw on the move this week at the Capitol. So there were transgender students and their families who came to speak out against some of these laws or some of these bills. Um, And then on the other side, there were conservative activists who were worried that their kids are being essentially indoctrinated in Iowa's public schools. Uh, so it was a busy week, uh, and there's there's several different proposals on the move. Well, well, what I'd like to hear from you, Katie, is just some of that. You mentioned the testimony there. Um, mm-hmm. Dig a little bit into that, what you heard at the testimony, what the arguments are uh, for uh, these changes, conservative parents celebrating these proposals, uh, and the words against uh, this. Uh, give us some more detail, if you could. Absolutely. So... One of the main bills that uh, had a public hearing this week was the bill that would prohibit any curriculum about gender identity from kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, Republican lawmakers who uh, led the pat or led the movement on that bill, they essentially said, you know, kids are young, they're impressionable. We don't want them to get confused about what their gender is. But then on the other side, we had some transgender kids who came and spoke who essentially said that they already face a lot of bullying from their peers in school, and they're worried that if that law passes, teachers will have 
less power to stop that bullying and less power to inform their fellow students, you know, what is going on and, and encourage them to be empathetic. Uh, so transgender kids and their parents are really concerned that with some of these restrictions, they might have an even harder time in Iowa schools and just be alienated further. Yeah. And one of the quotes, uh, a couple of the quotes jumped out at me from your reporting. This is uh, from uh, Senator Jeff Taylor, Republican from Sioux Center, arguing that uh, science about gender dysphoria has been, in his words, politicized and that lessons affirming transgender experiences are, in his words, promoting an ideology that I believe is grounded in something that is not true, is not accurate and is actually extreme. But you also point out what the American Medical Association says about it, right? Right. I mean, the American Medical Association recognizes that people, including children, can be transgender. And the thing to do is to affirm them and give them the care that they need to feel comfortable in the gender they identify as. So for many kids, all that is is buying them a new wardrobe. And then, you know, it's, it's later on in the process that that becomes more of a medical question. But many of these debates over these bills, you know, conservatives and Republican lawmakers have gotten to the very heart of the issue, which is that many of them are calling into question why kids identify as transgender. And for some, they seem to believe it's, um, you know, confusion rather than uh, a more real and profound lived experience than that. Mm. Okay, so th- that is a, sort of one set of bills. Uh, what other bills have been introduced uh, in this area? Beyond just LGBTQ issues, uh, lawmakers are also concerned more broadly about what is being taught in Iowa schools. You know, we saw a bill on the move this week that would restrict um, social emotional learning. Uh, This is a nationwide concept that basically says that schools should be teaching kids how to deal with their emotions, how to interact politely with their peers. Um, You know, some lawmakers are concerned that in Iowa, social-emotional learning also includes some social justice concepts, you know, including these LGBTQ issues. Uh, So there's a movement to uh, do something with social-emotional learning and maybe de-emphasize that in Iowa classrooms. Um, And then we also saw a bill that would introduce new uh, civil penalties for schools that teach certain concepts that Iowa has already um, prohibited for schools. So two years ago, we saw the passage of legislation that says uh, Iowa schools and teachers cannot talk about systemic racism or systemic discrimination in Iowa and the U.S. Uh, and they cannot talk about the idea that any one race or group is inherently biased or oppressive. Uh, so those have been, you know, outlawed from Iowa schools for two years now. But lawmakers are coming back and thinking, are there more penalties that we can attach to that? And is there a formal reporting system that we can create to make sure that that is not happening in Iowa schools? So there's a lot of focus on what's going on in schools, what kids are being taught. And particularly on some of these social issues, there's a lot of um, back and forth about what should and what should not be in the schools. Okay, we have a lot of bills. You've been describing those as we progress in the coming weeks of the legislative session here. 
Um, we have to keep in mind Republicans have increased their majorities in both uh, chambers here. So as this gets debated and sifted through, uh, these are going to pass, wouldn't you say, in some forms, many of these bills? Yeah, it's hard to say exactly. You know, it is important to remember that we are still in the first couple weeks of the legislative session. Um, There are a lot of bills introduced every session and not all of them make it across the finish line, even the ones proposed by Republicans. Um, We do expect some of these to make it into law. You know, the House Republican leadership identified um, some of these LGBTQ bills as top priorities. Uh, They have another top priority bill that would notify parents if a student, you know, asked a teacher privately that they wanted to change their pronouns or change their name. I would require that teacher to tell parents. That's a big priority for Iowa's House Republicans. So some of these we have to wait and see, but it's definitely a big topic at the Capitol this year. And finally, put this in a national context, because uh, Iowa uh, here, um, this legislation, Iowa's not alone. Uh, We're seeing this sort of legislation advancing in other Republican-led states, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is a, a big issue across the country right now. You know, we've seen, like I said, Florida passed their law that prohibits uh, instruction on sexual orientation um, and I believe also gender identity. Um, Other states have passed similar legislation. You know, it's all part of a big, broad movement and focus on education that really started during the pandemic. You know, a lot of parents were upset with school districts and they got more involved in their children's education during virtual learning, during COVID-19. And that has really continued and and spurred a much wider movement uh, where parents want more control and more oversight into their kids' classrooms. And that includes the sort of social values that their kids are picking up in school. It's a, it's a powerful force right now. Okay, Katie Aiken, thanks for the tremendous reporting and for this conversation, Katie Aiken of the Des Moines Register. Until next time, Katie, take care. All right, thanks so much, Ben. Say, if you're interested in going more in-depth on Iowa Statehouse politics, you really, really need to subscribe to IPR's podcast, Under the Golden Dome, with host John Pemble. Uh, Here's a sample of some of the controversy in these uh, gender identity bills being advanced by Republican lawmakers. It's from uh, this week's podcast. To set it up a bit, uh, a bill in a Senate subcommittee would prohibit curriculum in grades K through 8 to include gender identity discussions that differ from what is on a child's birth certificate. Aaron Cavazos. Aaron Cavazos is a counselor with the Des Moines Public Schools. Cavazos cites information from the Trevor Project. That's a nonprofit organization that states their mission is to, quote, end suicide among lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning young people. Let's listen. The Trevor Project finds that fewer than one in three transgender and non-binary youth find their homes to be gender affirming. And another scary statistic is that 45% of those youth seriously consider attempting suicide within the past year. This bill would be forcing us to out kids and then um, not allow us to offer the supports and leave them um, unsupported. And from the other side of the aisle, uh, Republican Representative Skyler Wheeler here, he chairs this subcommittee, a bit of audio from him. And we should note, even though he says the word evil, it was, in fact, not used by the opposition in this debate. That's literally what you guys were saying. Parents are evil. Parents don't know what's best for their kids. That's what was said to us today. 
I cannot believe in the state of Iowa we have people that think that parents are going to abuse and hurt their kids because they find something out at school. If they do, the law already applies to that. They don't get away with that. But my goodness, what an awful, awful thing to stand against. So much controversy. Excerpts from the latest edition of the IPR podcast, Under the Golden Dome, which drops tomorrow morning. Subscribe to Under the Golden Dome wherever you get your podcasts. It's a News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, Those incessant rains out west, remember those not too long ago? They improved that very dry state of affairs in the west. However, about 60% of the region in our western states remains in some form of drought. Now, here's a solution (laughs) that really surprised the heck out of me when I first read about it in the Gazette. But evidently, it's a proposed solution that has come up for real again and again over the years large-scale river diversions, including, get this, pumping Mississippi River water to the west to help them out there. Brittany Miller is with me. She's the energy and environmental reporter for the Gazette, a core member with Report for America. That's a national service program that places journalists in local newsrooms to report on undercovered issues. Brittany Miller, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Excuse me for my initial reaction here, because I saw the headline, started to read read it. Let me read the headline here. Pumping Mississippi River Water West, a pipe dream or a solution. I thought for an instant that might be a satirical headline on The Onion, but it's not. It's for real, right? Yep. Yeah, I was I was just as surprised as you were when I first saw um, these proposals popping up. Uh, this past summer, actually, a couple of them went viral uh, in letters to the editors in a, uh, um, a publication out West, I think it was in California. And ever since then, I, it kind of piqued my interest and hence this article, kind of a deep dive into if such proposals are actually possible or not. Right. Okay. So let's look at it and, and you sort of divide it up. What's being proposed? Is it physically feasible? And then you talk about the politically, uh, the political feasibility of it too. Let's start with the physical side. What is being proposed? Mm-hmm there aren't any like solid plans. Let's just start with that. These are just um, ideas that people have kind of thrown out, um, you know, in those editorials on social media a lot, but it also runs deeper than that. Um, The Arizona legislature actually requested a feasibility study um, from Congress in 2021 to look into the possibility of uh, piping flood water from Mississippi River um, across to the west. So, so this is actually happening now in Arizona, that they're coveting our water here in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and action has been taken. So mm-hmm. uh, talk a little bit, bit more about that. It, it, has there been reaction from people in that region or from this region to that proposal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the um, that feasibility study was requested to my knowledge and to the researchers knowledge is the researchers that I talked to their knowledge um, that hasn't actually been completed yet. Um, so right now, like these ideas are still uh, up in the air. Um, but the reactions that we've seen in those letters to the editor, um, it's kind of a, a firestorm between um, readers out West who are experiencing, you know, these drought conditions and seeking solutions. And then readers from the Midwest um, and the 
Mississippi River Basin, who, you know, are, are very understandably protective of their water, especially this past year, and we've seen a drought of our own. Exactly. Um, and, and, and okay, so, so, so focusing on the physical side of it, uh, explain, uh, because you talk to very um, informed people that would know whether this is physically feasible or not, mm-hmm. and I gather from your, your, your report, it is feasible. Not that it's easy. It's feasible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually, what I found most interesting was that the physical aspect was actually um, what researchers deemed like the easiest part of these uh, proposals. Engineering-wise, it is feasible, according to the engineers I, I spoke to. Um, would it be an astronomical project? Yes. Um, one of the engineers I spoke to actually did his own analysis on it, and he said that uh, if it were to be a pipeline, for example, it would have to be nearly 90 feet in diameter. And just to give you an idea of how big that is, that's nearly the length of two semi-trailers. Um, so that's a big pipe. <laughs> yes. And that would have to stretch for over a thousand miles. Um, but they did say that like that is possible. You know, we've done uh, lots of engineering feats over the years and um, we could do it. Would it come with a huge price tag? Yes, but um, it is possible. Mm-hmm. Um and you point in your uh, article uh, to instances of sort of major water distribution. Um, well, Alaska, you point to, but also in the uh, the lower 48 as well. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, we wanted to kind of get a sense of how 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 long interest in these in similar proposals has been going on for an American company. Um, had a plan to redistribute Alaskan water across the continent. Um, So that was the earliest that we found, um, at least on like a large scale, that people were, um, you know, thinking of doing these large scale diversions um, to redistribute water. Um, And so we kind of followed that over the years to see what else has been proposed. And um, a lot of those plans do fizzle out, but there there are plans that have actually, you know, gone into effect. Uh, You know, we've seen uh, diversions from the Great Lakes. Uh, Those resulted in, you know, the Great Lakes Compact, which now protects such diversions from happening, um, except for some uh, uh, exclusions. Um, And, you know, we've seen efforts in Iowa to to do that, too. We saw uh, just an article, I think it was a month or two ago, by the Iowa Capital Dispatch in northwest Iowa, a, um, a company, um, uh, a, a river has been pumped to drive basically repeated times uh, by a water utility that sells at least a quarter of that water outside the state. Yeah, I cannot imagine trucking uh, thousands of gallons of water to another part of the country is cost effective in any way. We have a drought, as you mentioned, not as severe as in the West, but nevertheless, a drought uh, in the Midwest. Here in Iowa, we need our own water. That was something that a lot of researchers talked to me about because, um, you know, moving water west obviously has implications for the West, but it also has implications here in the basin. Um, You know, we experienced very low water levels this year from the Mississippi River or in the Mississippi River, and to the point where, you know, barges were had to slow down and uh, that affected our supply chain. So um, I think there's a, a misconception, um, you know, across the country that uh, the, the Mississippi River Basin always has floods. 
Um, and we do have obviously notorious floods in our histories, but we also have droughts like what we're experiencing right now. Um, and we don't, we don't have enough water, you know, to share, especially at this big of a scale, you know, indefinitely. I think that was a point that a lot of the researchers talked to me about. Yeah. And so to conclude this and to put down any fears that may have been awakened <laughs> by the headline and this conversation, to conclude here, um, after doing this research, talking with experts here, uh, listening to these proposals, how likely is it that anything like this will get off the ground even um, in its initial stages? Yeah, I th- I would say uh, the short answer is not likely, at least in our lifetime. Um, you know, we talked about how it is possible engineering-wise, um, but it's so expensive. Um, the researcher from uh, Western Illinois University that I interviewed, who did his own analysis, he he uh, estimated that the sale of the water alone would be over a hundred billion dollars, and that's on top of you know costs associated with building the pipeline or canal or whatever infrastructure needed. And then, you know, the, the cost to buy land and water rights um, to build that project. Um, and and beyond that, uh, the, the biggest obstacles are just the legal and political ones. Um, you know, there's a lot of hurdles to jump through to even make this happen. Like on, on the local scale, you know, endangered species protections, wildlife protect or wetlands protections, um, drinking water supply considerations. Um, and it's just, there's no political appetite, at least to the degree that would be needed to actually get something like this off the ground. Um, and, you know, my researchers, I asked them, you know, in the long, long term, like, what could they see happening? And maybe one day, like, conditions might get so dire in the West that, you know, this is considered um, more seriously. Um, but for right now, I think we really uh, promoted more uh, feasible solutions like water conservation, um, desalination was a big uh, augmentation option that people talked about a lot. Um, just like agriculture relying, agriculture relying less on, um, you know, the dwindling water supplies out west. So, um, yeah, that was the long answer to that question, but uh, all of them assured me that this probably won't happen in our lifetime. Brittany Miller, thank you very much, energy and environmental reporter for the Gazette, a core member with Report for America, uh, and also to mention this story is a product of the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Mask. Fascinating <laughs> proposals just to contemplate. Thank you for digging into it, Brittany, and reporting on it for the Gazette. Thank you so much for having me. Go away for a few minutes and come back with the second half of this news bus edition of Provincial River. I'm Ben Kiefer. Stay tuned. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. 
Well, you know, there's a National Motorcycle Museum in Anamosa in eastern Iowa. If you've always wanted to visit, just never got around to it or, or want to pay it a last visit, get that on your calendar soon. The National Motorcycle Museum is a nonprofit in Anamosa, and it announced last week it will be closing later this year. Jill Parham is uh, chair of the board of directors of this nonprofit, the National Motorcycle Museum in Anamosa. Jill, welcome to our program. Hi. Why have you decided to close? Well, we have struggled for many, many years here financially, and um, I think a lot of museums struggle, and I, I, I think most of them probably have a, a sugar daddy that supports them, and um, my husband and I have been that um, sugar daddy here. <laughs> and uh-huh. I've just decided that um, it's just time for it to go. Um, I, I, it's struggled and struggled, and um, as I age a little bit and um, want to get out of this little cold Iowa, I have decided to <laughs> to close it. And so um, it's a very sad decision, and it was a very hard decision, an emotional I bet. decision. I bet, um, yeah. But I had full support of the board. Um, they've We've tried different things, you know, with the struggles we've had over the years, and um, it it just isn't working. And COVID didn't help us any. The, you know, 2020 didn't help anybody. I'll say, Jill, how did the museum get started? Actually, my husband and I were on the board of directors for the Sturgis Museum way back in 2000, and it was going to close, and they needed somebody to take that over financially. And so we did and moved it back to Iowa. That was in 2001. And we operated it downtown in Anamosa for 10 years and then moved it out here to where it's at in the old Walmart building um, that we had bought when Walmart moved across the street. And so it's been operating in Anamosa for 22 years. It's just a fabulous thing because we have so many great motorcycles from all different makes and models. And we have memorabilia, and we we did have quite a few bicycles. Some of those are gone right now because we're trying to clean out some of the area to have some places to move things. But it's still a great place to come visit, and we still have T-shirts left, and um, we'd love to see everybody. Yeah, um, 500 motorcycles there in the museum, uh, certainly worth a visit. Tell us uh, about uh, one or two of the the gems in your collection that are must-see cycles. We have um, a, a 1911 um, Flying Merkel that's um, one of the original from 1911, and there's only probably maybe three of those in the whole United States. Um, I have an 08 strap tank um, Harley-Davidson where there's maybe only three of those in the United States. So we have some great old bikes to look at, and we have videos to watch, and um, we have a, a great early American um, innovative um area that has a 1911 um, aeroplane <laughs> that would land on water, and it hangs uh. way up above, um, and it's it's fairly awesome to see. Um, so uh, just great things to look at. People come in here, and they could spend eight hours, actually. Yeah. What will happen to all the, the hundreds of cycles uh, once the museum closes? Um, they'll actually go up for auction. I will save um, quite a few of my um, real rare ones that is in my collection, and then some of the ones that got donated to the museum. So over the years, many, many motorcycles got donated to the museum, like um, people whose grandpa maybe died and they didn't know what to do with the motorcycles. So we will sell those to pay off some of the bills. 
And yeah. um, there's probably about 75 of those. And um, I then we'll sell some of the rest of them at an auction. And I don't know the date of the auction yet, but they can keep following the um, National Motorcycle Museum website, and it'll be posted there. Yeah. Oh, with hundreds of uh, uh, vintage motorcycles, uh, I imagine it's not not hard to figure the uh, ballpark figure of the value when you these go to auction in the millions for sure. Sure, it is. Yeah, they're they're very rare bikes, and um, it'll be great for the, the. I'm hoping that the auction will be here in Anamosa, but I, I'm not guaranteeing that yet because I don't know. Um, Meekum <laughs> Auctions will do the auction. Yeah. Okay, um, Jill, do you still ride? Um, I do not ride. I have my license still, but I used to ride. I um, have just gotten, um, oh, where those old bones just don't move the way they used to, you know, so <laughs> I don't ride yeah. anymore. But I, I would ride behind, but I don't drive. I'll put it that way. Yeah, get it on your calendar soon. The National Motorcycle Museum in Anamosa uh, closing, uh, what did I read, uh, in the fall sometime? September 5th. Uh, some, yeah, September, September 5th. 5th. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jill Parham, a chair of the board of directors at the National Motorcycle Museum in Anamosa. We wish you well. Take care. All right. Thank you. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, as you know, we celebrated it all in 2022. The history of IPR stations, WOI and WSUI, stretches back over a century now. And uh, we celebrated those stations' 100th birthdays in 2022 and began a new series Uh, which we want to have continue here on River to River. It's time for another in our series of conversations here on River to River that explores radio the way it used to be in the early days. It's time for What Dennis Found in the Basement. My guests uh, for this continuing series, of course, the Dennis in question, Dennis Reese, retired IPR midday host, a longtime collector of radio artifacts. He's an old-time uh, radio guru, so to speak, a wellspring of information, stories about the early days of radio. Dennis, welcome back to our studio. It's great to be here again, Ben. Alongside your sidekick, Tim Walsh, historian, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. Welcome to you. Nice to see you for the first time in 2023. That's right. Good to see you both. (laughs) So the idea, people out there shaking their heads now, what is this about? This is what it's about. Finding radio treasures from yesteryear, many of which are stored in the basement of IPR's facility in Iowa City. Dennis, uh, you have been cataloging, going through these things. What did you bring up from the basement this time? I found Lawrence Ferlinghetti in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence Ferlinghetti Lawrence is? Ferlinghetti. <laughs> the great Lawrence Ferlinghetti, poet, painter, social activist, co-founder of City Lights Books in San Francisco. You know, Ben and Tim, high school and college students in the 1960s, I'm in that group, often carried with them a paperback, usually a worn copy of Ferlinghetti's beloved second collection of poems, A Coney Island of the Mind. I had a copy, and I've just found out that, Tim, you still have your copy. The copy I have in front of me is the 19th printing. Now, this is poetry, and anyone out there who's a poet will know very few books go into 19 printings. 500,000 copies. This was a something of a Bible or a totem among 
rebellious teenagers because the whole beat movement in San Francisco, uh, you know, people will remember Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso and Hey Man and Bongos and all of that was kind of waved over the nation. And so into the 1960s, when uh, Iowa was maybe catching up or at least had the opportunity to have Ferlinghetti come to, to campus, they took up that opportunity. What, Dennis, what year was it? Well, this is an interview from WSUI, the archives, done in 1966, and Ferlinghetti would have been 47 at that time. And of course, you know, he died in 2021 at age 101 mm. after having published a novel at the age of 100. So what you pulled out of the basement, some audio, uh, archive audio, recorded here in Iowa City of uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And you mentioned, you know, co-founder of City Lights Books in San Francisco. But in Iowa City, uh, the namesake carries (laughs) on because Prairie Lights was taken taken off. Right. That's that's right. uh, And this was a speech at the Iowa Memorial Union that we recorded in 1966. We're going to hear a couple of excerpts. What are we going to hear first here, Dennis? I think he's uh, going to read a poem or two from Coney Island of the Mind. Well, I suppose this is a love poem. Number nine. See, it was like this. When we waltz into this place, a couple of papish cats is doing an Aztec two-step. And I says, Dad, let's cut. But then this dame comes up behind me, see, and says, you and me could really exist. Wow, I says. Only the next day, she has bad teeth and really hates poetry. Can't help but smile with that. Uh, Recorded uh, way back in 1966 uh, in our archive here, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. um, uh, (laughs) I can hear the audience snapping their fingers saying, cool, man. He really connected with the age and the time of that. Oh, uh, yeah. In In many ways, it's that that sort of uh, kind of halcyon days of, of... the beat movement, you know, when they were all alive and active, was at this point not quite into the Vietnam War protest era. Right, right. and we're, we're, we're coming up to the, the tumult, uh, tumult right. of, of the late 60s. So right. this is an important historical, cultural context we're, we're tapping into here. Well, and this whole idea of using poetry as an alternative to the sort of what some undergraduates would think would be the stodgy literature that they were being asked to read in their, their undergraduate uh, courses. So this was, a, this was rebellion, and he came from San Francisco, which, of course, shortly thereafter would become the, the location for a lot of popular rock music for, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the whole West Coast uh, Jefferson Airplane and all the rest of the, the, the rock groups that came out of California. So poetry and rock music, it's all part of the youthful rebellion that is the 60s. Now, Dennis, you said there's something like an hour of this uh, lecture yeah. that Ferlinghetti gave in 1966. Mm-hmm. We're going to hear another excerpt here uh, to, to finish yeah. off our conversation. And I don't know how many poets have done a poem about underwear. <laughs> it would be Lawrence Ferlinghetti, of course, and uh, we're going to hear, okay. hear part of this. I think Tim wants to get Just in before we do. Just one quick thing, yeah. because the question will come up. This is a C-SPAN type question for those who watch <laughs> C-SPAN. Where did the title come from, Coney Island uh, of the Mind? And it comes from Henry Miller's book, 
into the nightlife. So that's where he took uh, that that uh, phrase from. And all of the poems are numbered, so they don't have. Uh, and many of the poems were supposed to be set to jazz music. Yes, there you go. Uh, but we, we're not going to do that no. here. Okay. That's okay. Great. That's okay. Here's here's a portion of the poem read by Lawrence Ferlinghetti in 1966. Um, <laughs> it's titled "Underwear." One poem that I forgot to read in the first set from. Uh, starting from San Francisco, uh, which uh, is a serious poem about underwear, which turns into a love poem. (laughs) That's what happens in underwear quite often. Uh, I didn't get much sleep last night thinking about underwear. Have you ever stopped to consider underwear in the abstract? When you really dig into it, some shocking problems are raised. (laughs) Underwear controls everything in the end. Take foundation garments, for instance. They are really fascist forms of underground government, (laughs) making people believe something but the truth, telling you what you can or can't do. Did you ever try to get around a girdle? Perhaps nonviolent action is the only answer. (laughs) Did Gandhi wear a girdle? Did Lady Macbeth wear a girdle? Was that why Macbeth murdered sleep? (laughs) And that spot she was always rubbing, was it really in her underwear? Modern Anglo-Saxon ladies must have huge guilt complexes, always washing and washing and washing out damned spot. (laughs) Underwear with spots, very suspicious. (laughs) Underwear with bulges, very shocking. Underwear on clothesline, a great flag of freedom. Someone has escaped his underwear, maybe naked somewhere. Help. The Lawrence Ferlinghetti, poet, painter, social activist, the co-founder of City Lights Books in San Francisco, visiting in that archive audio, visiting Iowa City to deliver in 1966 uh, some of his talks, some of his, um, uh, his poetry. That one obviously centering on... <laughs> Underwear. I wonder. I wonder. You know, if we're so many decades past the 1960s now, the irreverency that we had in that, the kind of body talk, offbeat talk. How did that sound to uh, young people of the 1960s? I mean, help us understand that. You can hear the laughter in the audience, and I think they felt they were having good fun with the, you know, the the old biddies and and people who represented the. The, the structure and order of society. And that was part of growing up and being an undergraduate, even at the University of Iowa, which was, we're going to be different. And Ferlinghetti was their poet, and he spoke out on things that were intended to cause shock, but also to give people a laugh. And I can tell you, every member of the Cedar Falls High School debate team, 1968 through 1970, carried around a copy, proudly, but Coney Island of the Mind, we had our copies. And, 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 and uh, Tim, you brought your copy. I looked I on the backside. It cost $1. $1. <laughs> this, is, this is a 1969 copy, yeah. a little worn like the rest of us. Uh, yeah. But nevertheless, I would say, by the way, that the underwear poem, I think, is in a different book. It's a sample oh, book about not San Francisco. Ever. So anyone who rushes out to buy... Believe it or not, Coney Island in the Mind, I think, is still in print. Oh, yeah, certainly. More than a million copies were eventually sold. So Fascinating. Dennis, you dragged something from the uh, IPR basement up that is fascinating. Uh, Thank you for the entertainment and the historical perspective from you, uh, Tim Walsh. Uh, Dennis Reese and Tim Walsh uh, teaming up to bring us uh, our continuing series occasionally. Uh, You'll hear it on River to River. 
what Dennis found in the basement. Um, uh, looking back at uh, radio from yesteryear, Tim and Dennis, until next time. Get down okay. to the basement again, Dennis. <laughs> I'm we- heading down there. <laughs> heading down there right now. <laughs> bye, bye, you two. Thanks, boy. I am leading a quiet life in Mike's place every day, watching the pocket pool players, making the minestrone scene, wolfing the macaronis. And I have read somewhere the meaning of existence, yet have forgotten just exactly where. But I am the man, and I'll be there. And I may cause the lips of those who are asleep to speak. And I may make my notebooks into sheaves of grass. And I may write my own eponymous epitaph, instructing the horsemen to pass. And that just about does it for this Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this Friday, February 3rd. Joining us to groove us into the weekend, C.C. Mitchell of IPR Studio One. Hi, C.C. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going well. I'm looking forward to the weekend, but I need to be grooved into the weekend, and you've got a couple of tunes to do that, right? Sure thing. Let's get right into it. So the first track, um, just for context, I'm from Grinnell, right? And everybody from Mm. small town Iowa loves when other people are from small town Iowa, right? So this this artist went to, yeah, (laughs) went to Grinnell College, actually. And she started as just like a local Iowa musician, you know, being played here at Studio One. We love playing local musicians here at Studio One. But then she's kind of flown the coop afterwards and become like this kind of big national act. So super exciting for somebody to gain popularity from being from Grinnell. I'm very excited about that. The artist's name is Squirrel Flower, and I'm really excited to show you her new single. It's called Your Love. Your love is a diamond Sharpens me so nice But I was never Squirrel Flower with uh, Your Love, a new single. Uh, vocal styling sort of not unlike Pieta Brown is what springs to mind for me, CC. Right, yeah, definitely got that Iowa vibe. <laughs> All right, we have time for one more tune. Who do you have? 
So our next track is by the supergroup Boy Genius. It's a supergroup consisting of Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, and Julian Baker. All three of those artists, they get quite a bit of airtime here on Studio One. And so we're excited that they're releasing new music together. They've released an EP together, and now they're going to release their debut LP. It's called The Record. That's coming out in March. And they just released a few singles from that upcoming record. So here's one of them from Boy Genius. It's called $20. It's an I do like that one. Boy Genius is the band. $20, the new single. Uh, CC, thanks for sharing that with us, and uh, we'll go out with that tune. Um, tune in for IPR Studio One tracks. Remind us how people can tune in on the weekend or throughout the week, CC, please. Studio One Tracks is on Monday through Saturday nights at 7 p.m. And then we've got Studio One All Access on Saturdays at 1 p.m. and Sundays at 7 River to River today, produced by Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Have a wonderful weekend. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Free Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com.